My favorite reading uh, is biographical reading. It's un, it, almost every night I have by my bed either a biography or an autobiography because I had a, a professor in graduate school said, if you want to be a great man of God, read about great men of God. Or ladies, if you want to be a great woman of God, read the stories, the true stories of those who have gone uh, before you. I just bought C.S. Lewis' new biography. I cannot wait. Well, actually, I started yesterday reading it. I just finished the biography of Sam Houston. Have you ever heard of Sam Houston? Well, I guess you have, being in Texas. And uh, what a fascinating uh, read. And this week, I picked up Whitaker Chambers' biography. He was a Russian spy uh, who became a Christian, and I'm looking forward to reading that as well. My favorite biography is what I'm about to read to you today. It is one of four biographies that have been written on Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four uh, biographical sketches, if you will, of Jesus Christ. His virgin birth, his sinless life, the miracles that he performed, his vicarious substitutionary death on the cross, Good Friday, and then uh, the day that changed all days and the day that we are here, the reason we're here today is because the grave could not keep him up from the from the dead, from the grave, he arose. I know that you're here today because you believe that. Earlier on, about 30 years ago when I started preaching, I thought it was my job, I thought I was God's ambassador to convince all the atheists and the agnostics on Easter. And then it dawned on me, you nitwit, they wouldn't be there if they didn't believe. And so you're here today, at least you have a modicum of faith. You believe something about the Christian life. You believe in Jesus Christ, at least that He exists, or I know you would not waste your time and you would not be here today. But what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through one of the narratives, one of the stories of Jesus and His post-resurrection appearances. In Luke chapter 24, He tells us that Christ, after He died and arose from the dead, He appeared to many people. First of all, the two angels were there awaiting the women and said, He is not here. He is risen. Go and tell His disciples. And then Jesus, Luke 24, tells us He appears to these two men on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus is a little town about seven miles from Jerusalem. And then Luke records that Christ just miraculously appears before the disciples. And then Paul tells us that He appears to as many as 500 people at one time. As I thought about that this week, I thought, you know, isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ did what no other person has ever done. He lived, a, well, first of all, he was virgin born. How about that? Born of a virgin Mary, never sinned, never said anything wrong, never did anything wrong, lived a sinless, spotless life, and then he died for the sins of the world. He was buried, and then he arose from the dead, never to die again. And so he is so unique, and that is the reason we are here today is because He is incomparable. Uh, He is the King. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. But what I want to do today is I want to walk through uh, Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, and I want to try to unpack for you this road to Emmaus story. And my sermon's a little bit different today because it's a narrative. It is a story, and so I want to try to move you through the narrative of the story, and I want to do it in little vignettes. I want to do it through little scenarios. For example, we're going to look at the setting of the story, then secondly, the dialogue contained within the story, and then finally, we're going to look at the responses to the resurrected Christ by these two uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, 
Jesus, and this just, just struck me this week as I was preparing this sermon, he is so much like he was post-resurrection as he was pre-resurrection. Meaning, his purpose was to do the Father's will. More than anything else, he said, I am here on a mission. I have a purpose, and everything I do is for a reason, and I want to please my heavenly Father, even if it means, yea, going to the cross and dying, and I will do that. And and as I look at Jesus in his post-resurrection, I am fascinated. For 40 days, 40 days, he waits to ascend back to the Father and the angels, and he teaches people. He appears to people for 40 days. There is a an oil painting in Dallas, Texas. It's called the Resurrection Mural. It is 12 feet high by 40 feet wide. Uh, The author or the artist is a man by the name of Ron DeCiani, and it is literally entitled The Resurrection Mural. It's located in the Museum of Biblical Arts in Dallas, Texas. And in a moment, I want to show you a little bit of this Resurrection Mural. By the way, 12 feet high, 40 feet wide. And by the way, there are angels on either side. There are biblical characters depicted in the, in the mural, in the painting. But when you look at this, I want you to notice the eyes of Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and show this for a few seconds, the resurrection mural. That's not it. That's me. <laughs> Do you have it? I'm calling out, please, do you have it? Shane, do you have it or no? Okay, we can't find it. It's in the atmosphere. It's in the cybersphere. Anyhow, take my word for it. It's it's amazing. Because when Jesus comes out of the grave, he has this look on his face. And this look is one, and I've never seen it quite depicted this way. He has this gaze upon him, and he's not looking around. He's not looking at the people. He is looking straight up to the heavenly Father. And Deciani says, this is what I'm trying to encapsulate. This is what I'm trying to capture. I did it. I did it. I did what you asked me to do, and now I am raised back from the dead. So, if it comes up, just, just show it. Uh, if, if y'all find it, j- just interrupt me anywhere during the sermon. Uh, you have my permission uh, to do that. So, let's go, let's go into the text, Luke chapter 24. I'll begin reading in verse 13. And we'll read the, the, whole, the whole pericope, if you will, the whole narrative, the whole paragraph, the whole story. And, and keep these three scenes in mind. First of all, there is the setting, what is going on in the setting And then secondly, there will be this dialogue, this dialogical moment between Jesus Christ and these two uh, disciples. And then finally, we're going to look at the response. So let's begin with the setting as Luke paints the picture for us beginning in verse 13. The picture that we can see, by the way, here in the Word of God. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was and I love Luke. He's such a great historian. He's a medical doctor. He's a very brilliant person, the person who's writing this, this book, Luke. Emmaus is seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things the disciples did, which had happened. And so it was, while they conversed and they reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near, and he went, or he walked with these men. But their eyes were restrained, and they did not know 
uh, who he was. And so here is the setting. Christ is risen from the dead. Before he ascends to the Father, he is on a mission still, and he is making these post-resurrection appearances. He is appearing to, to the women and to the disciples and to Peter and to the, uh, to, to the throngs, over 500 people. And what's so amazing to me, and the reason why I said Jesus is so much like the pre-resurrected Christ as he is in the post-resurrection is because he still has this determination to do the Father's will, and he still has this humility about him. Think about it. He has just accomplished what no other person has or ever will accomplish, and yet he, he takes a day, basically, and he walks with these two sad disciples as they have left Jerusalem, and they are making their way back home to a little town called Emmaus. Amazing. They're talking, they're reasoning, their countenance is sad, and Jesus comes alongside of them, and yet their eyes are restrained. They see him, but they do not recognize him. Uh, somebody called this a divine passive. That's a good way to describe it. A divine passive, meaning the Almighty God restrained their eyes so they could not see him until later on. And I began to think about that this week. And I began to resonate and re and just kind of respond to these two disciples because oftentimes in my life and in your life, we are sad and, and we're, de we're discouraged, and yet God does not intervene at that very moment of our sadness and our discouragement. Have you ever noticed that? Well, if you haven't, then live a little longer and you'll notice that. That God in His sovereignty, in His omniscient mind, He does not always intervene in a way that we would want Him to and say, God, do it and do it now. No, for the whole day. Their eyes are restrained as Christ speaks to them. And I, I, th I thought about that. I wonder if there are times in our life when God does not answer our prayers immediately and He allows us to suffer because there is a greater good. You see, we would never have the story if their eyes were immediately open, right? So their eyes are closed, and I believe their eyes are closed so that you and I could peer into this narrative, into this story, and see Jesus Christ in a way that we've never seen Him before as He is walking with these two on the road to Emmaus. Number two is the dialogue. And this is our lengthy section, and I'll read it. And it goes like this, beginning in verse 17. And he said unto them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another, and you walk and you are sad? Jesus says, Why are you guys so sad? <laughs> and of course, he knows why they're sad. And by the way, when God asks a question in the Bible, he's not looking for information, okay? <laughs> it's always rhetorical. Adam, where art thou? Adam, where are you? Man, I can't find you. I created you, but I can't find No. He's asking Adam, where are you? Because he wants Adam to know. He wants Adam to think about where he was, where he is. So he asks these guys, he goes, why are you guys sad? And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas or Cleopas, said, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? I think there's an edge to this. I think there is a tint of sarcasm here. Are you... Are you did you just wake up today? I mean, what, what is, you don't know what has happened in Jerusalem? And you have not known the things that have happened there? And Jesus said to them, I almost laugh when I read this. What, what, <laughs> what, what are you talking about? What things? What things? And then they said to him, well, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. And 
our chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be crucified and condemned him. And now, you know, we were hoping. Verse 21, isn't that powerful? Can you wrap your minds around those words of sadness? I mean, palpable sadness. It's so conspicuous. You can reach out and touch their tangible sadness when they said, you know, we have had our hopes dashed. We were hoping that he might have been the one. Yes, we were, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Now, by the way, when they say redeem Israel, they're talking about delivering Israel with a mighty political uh, messiah, a military man who would come in and destroy the hated Romans and deliver the Jews once and for all. They were hoping that would happen. But that's not why Jesus came. Jesus did not come to deliver the Jews out of the Roman bondage. He came to deliver you and me out of our sinful bondage, you see. A much stronger deliverance. We were hoping it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, today is the third day since these things were, were, have happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early, they astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said, He's alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but he or him they did not see. Now, for the most part of the dialogue, Jesus is just listening. But now he's about to speak. And listen to what he says. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe... Would you underline that little prepositional phrase there, to believe? You're so slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in the Scriptures the things concerning himself. What an amazing dialogue. Don't you wish, and maybe it's true, that in heaven, God has this on a big heavenly DVR. I mean, he has it recorded. I want to see this. I want to see how Jesus is hidden from their eyes, and it allows us to walk with them the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus and the dialogue that transpires. Verse 18, Cleopas asks this question. He, he says, how, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and you, you do not know what has happened over these last few days. And the beginning, as I read in verses 19 through 24, these two men, very interesting, <laughs> these two men begin to tell Jesus, who's standing before them, what happened to him. I, I, I'm sorry, there's just a little bit of comedy here to me. I just find this a little bit humorous and fascinating. That, that Jesus, can, can you just see him? He's, he's just walking with him. Talk, well, tell, me, tell me a little more about that. And they're just walking, and, and, and they walk all the way to the little village or to the, to the little town of, of Emmaus. I love the way they summarize the story. They say Jesus Christ, he was a great prophet, and he was mighty in power and mighty in deed. But our religious leaders, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, our religious leaders, they betrayed him, they tricked him, they tried him at night, and they mocked him, and they, they turned him over to Pilate, and they crucified him, and, and we were really hoping. 
said, sir, we don't really know you, but you ask us, so we're just telling you, we were hoping that he might have been the one. You know, sometimes it goes like that in life, doesn't it? Our hopes are dashed. The prospect of what we thought we wanted and what we needed, we feel like God and we feel like everybody else, the church and even our family, even our closest friends, they have deserted us, they have abandoned us, nobody cares for us. And I'm just, I'm just so disappointed, I'm so mad, I'm so angry at God. And a lot of times that's what happens. And here's what's so fascinating to me, that's okay. God is big enough to handle your anger, by the way. And if you will keep walking, and if you don't abandon hope, but believe, you will see the power of God displayed in your life. And that's what we're about to see here in a few moments. I don't know how many of you have the History Channel on cable, but I highly recommend you speaking of DVR and or recording. Tonight is the last scene. And I, I tell you, I've watched this, and I've just loved it. And yes, there are things that, that I disagree with or things that they, I wish they had put in. or they did. So, so what? Pharisee, for she, get over that. You know, I mean, I mean it's okay. And, and tonight is, is the resurrection, and I just love the way they depict him. When I read this text, he was a prophet, mighty in power and in deed and in word. Yes, he was, but he was much more than that. Verse 22 and 23, they recite, they recapitulate, they summarize the first 12 verses of Luke chapter 24 as they describe to the stranger the things that have happened. And then the conversation or the dialogue moves out of the monologue of just the men speaking, and now Jesus begins to speak in verse 25 in declarative statements, I remind you, not in questions. (laughs) He's not asking rhetorical questions anymore. He's about to kindly authoritatively, divinely rebuke them. And by the way, I've noticed this so many times in the Bible, that there's one thing that God rebukes severely and stringently, and he always rebukes unbelief. And you think about it. you got the creation of the world. You've got the seas, the skies, humanity, with our souls and our beings and our brains. And it's like God has just put everything on display. And here we are with the amazing gift of the Scriptures, and we can look back in time and see that the tomb is empty. And so there's one thing that God, he he, he rebukes it, and it is this, how could you not believe? It's like I've done everything for you. All I ask you to do is set aside your pride. Help me now. Set aside your intellectual acumen, your erudition, set aside your pride, and just for a moment believe that I know more than you do. (laughs) And God would say, I know more than you do. Okay, by the way, I created you and all your billions of little cells in your brain. I put those there. Now, trust me. And so he turns to those two men. He goes, gentlemen, you are foolish ones. You're so slow to heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? Ought not the Christ? Was it not necessary that he had to die, verse 26, and he had to suffer before he entered? Stay with me. He had to suffer. Why is it that suffering always precedes glory? I don't know why. That's just the way God has hardwired things. That we suffer, that's as, that's as much as dying is as much a part as living. The Christ is no exception. He, he had to suffer, and then he rises from the dead. Don't you guys know that? He's asking them. 
And then in verse 27, I love this passage of Scripture. And beginning at Moses in Genesis, and all the way through the prophets through Malachi, Jesus Christ preached to them from the Word of God about Himself. Woo! How would you like to have been there for that sermon, sister? How would you like to have heard that message? As Jesus Christ is walking, he don't need the text because he's got it all memorized, and he's walking with these two disciples, and he says, you know, think about in Genesis chapter 3 in the Proto-Evangelium, the first presentation of the gospel, where the prophecy is made that I would come and crush the head of the tempter. And so he begins in Genesis 3, and, and I wonder what else Jesus talked about. Maybe he walked him through the prophet Isaiah. And he said, look here in Isaiah 53, the Messiah must suffer. He must bleed. He must die. It is part of God's plan that the Messiah would die for the sins of the world. Cleopas, did you see that? And I can see old Cleopas going, yeah, I never saw that like that before. Well, come on over here to Psalm chapter 16. Can I show you? That he must rise. He must rise from the dead. Look what, look what Psalm 16, 8 says. You will not leave my soul in Sheol. You will raise me from the dead. You know who he's talking about, Mr. Cleopas and Mr. Cleopas's friend? He's talking about the Messiah. <gasps> wow! I wonder if he said, well, while I'm preaching, can I take you to Daniel? Oh, by the way, in the Bible, in the history story, on, on the History Channel, that is my favorite scene when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar lights the torch and the flame engulfs them. And then there is one, the Bible says, like unto the Son of Man. And you see the silhouette of the Son of God as he is protecting those three Hebrew teenagers. And I wonder if this stranger on the road to Emmaus said, isn't that pretty amazing that pre-incarnate Christ, there he is and he is protecting. I'm telling you, this Bible is full of this Messiah about which you, you read and you study. Oh, that's the, that's the dialogue. They're walking and you know, when you're walking and, and you're enjoying what you're doing, time just seems to evaporate. And before you know it, they have walked the seven miles. They're out of Jerusalem. They're in Emmaus. And scholars disagree. They say, well, they finally made it to Cleopas' home. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they just made it to an inn, an I-N-N. But let's pick up the responses, then, and we're done. Verse 28 says, Then they drew near to the village. That village would be Emmaus, where they were going. And Jesus, by the way, Jesus just surprises me sometimes. <laughs> he does things that I would, I would, you think, wow, he is just smarter than we are. Jesus pretended, or he acted as if he was going further. I don't know about how you look at that, but Jesus is walking with them and says, Okay, guys, take care take it easy. And he walks this way, and those guys go, whoa, no, 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 no. you got to come with us. Because they had heard it, and they see there's something special in this stranger as he preaches this powerful sermon about the Messiah. And so it says, they constrained him, saying, abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And this is the day before trains and planes and cars. It took a long time to get anywhere, okay? Seven miles is a long way to walk, so the day is far spent. And Jesus went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass. This is where it starts getting very serious. As he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, 
he blessed, he broke it, he gave it to them. The Creator who became the Savior, who died, who arose from the dead, served. Can you get your mind around that? I think our greatest attribute in Christianity is we mock our Savior, excuse me, we emulate our Savior. We don't mock Him. We emulate Him and we serve other people. And in that moment of serving, look what happens. Then their eyes were open. Another divine passive. God Almighty Himself opened their eyes would be a good translation. And they knew Him and then he vanished from their sight. Woo, son, this is amazing. This stranger, he's not a stranger. He, you are him. You are the Christ. And then Jesus, he vanishes from them. And then they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he, what, talked with us on the road and he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour, and they returned to Jerusalem. They headed back seven miles. <laughs> they just traversed seven miles, and they go back seven miles to Jerusalem. They found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together. And the, the eleven were saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared unto Simon Peter. They walked into a revival. I mean, they were elated. There was a sense of euphoria. The disciples are saying, he did it. He really did it. He arose from the dead, and he has appeared to us, and they're excited, and here come Cleopas and his buddy. And they walk in, they go, whoa, guess what happened to us? He appeared unto us. And so they had this holy celebration in verse 35. They told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. What a story. Again, I, I, I'm, words fail me as I try to share with you just how majestic, how marvelous, how miraculous this scene is in history. That Jesus could have been anywhere he wanted to be in heaven above or earth below, and yet he walks with these two men, spends a day with them, so that you and I could enter into this dialogue and we could extrapolate the following truths. If Jesus cares for these two very inconspicuous people, I wonder if he cares for me. If Jesus would take the time and share about his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection through the sacred scriptures, then Jesus would do that for me today. And that's precisely what he is doing. He is using me, just a simple country boy from Alabama. I am God's mouthpiece today to share with you the message of who Christ is and how awesome he is and how much he loves you and how much he wants. First of all, he wants to rebuke you for your unbelief. Kindly, gently, cogently, succinctly, and yet pointedly, he rebukes you. Why, Why can't you believe? What, what else do I have to do to convince you that I am who I say that I am. And so then he, he, he just does the miraculous. He serves them. I, I still can't get my mind around that. He's breaking the bread. Oh, here, here, let me, let me serve you. How many kings would do that? In fact, there's a song that goes like this. 
How many kings step down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? How many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did that for me, and that is him. That is Jesus. Verse 31 says, their eyes are open. Their hearts burned within them as Jesus opened the Scriptures. And, as, and some believe that he is, the, the terminology is so similar to Matthew 26, 26, that he is breaking bread and reenacting the Lord's Supper. Just about every scholar I read believes that is what is happening. So there's a lot happening here in this text. And so Christ, he reveals himself. Listen to them then and to us today through the preaching of the sacred scriptures. Uh, One writer puts it this way. He says, quote, In the reading of scripture and in the breaking of bread, the risen Lord will continue to be present, though unseen. Did you get that? Jesus is still miraculously, dynamically present with us as we worship today. Even though we cannot see him with our naked physical eyes, if we will believe, just open our hearts and our souls to him, he will reveal himself in great majesty and great power. I will close today by asking you, how will you respond? How do you respond to the litany of miracles that God has performed on your behalf? Will you respond with reticence and speculation and and, and eventually rejection? Or will you, like Sam Houston, will you say, I'm pretty smart, but God, you're smarter than I am. Sam Houston is a fascinating man. He said, I bet you didn't read that whole book for nothing. I bet you're going to tell us a little bit about, yes, Yes. Thank you, by the way, for asking me to share Sam Houston with you. By the way, they don't name the fourth largest city in America after nobody. Sam Houston, about my size, six foot two, 250 pounds. (laughs) Now, listen, that's big in 2013. Can you imagine the 1840s, how large of a man he was? He was the governor of the great state of anybody? Tennessee. That's right. Go Vols. Andrew Jackson was uh, one of his closest friends. Andrew Jackson basically had handpicked him to be the president, one of the, the future presidents of the United States. Everything was going great for Sam Houston until he married Eliza. As the governor of Tennessee, he marries this lady, and she breaks his heart. It started on their honeymoon. She didn't want to have anything to do with him, even on the honeymoon. And it devastated him. Remember in 1814, he has wounds. He has fought with Andrew Jackson. I mean, he has in his groin, he has this grotesque wound that still oozes. Okay, I know it's pretty gross. His shoulder is, is, is battered. And she goes, hey, I'm really not into this marriage. And so she leaves him, and this is what he does. He goes to the good people of Tennessee, and he says, I, as your governor, I'm no longer qualified to be your governor. I can't even leave my own home. I resign, and I'm leaving. And he did. And he ran, rode off into the sunset of the great state of Arkansas to live with the Indians. And for years, Sam Houston lives with Indians, learns their language, and drinks really, really heavily. 
takes him on, an Indian woman. I mean, he's just living the life of people who don't know God. I mean, if you don't know Jesus Christ and you're not walking with him, then that's what you do. You drink as much as you can. You sleep with as many people as you possibly can. That's what you do. And that's what he did. And pity the soul to tell him that was wrong. He has a temper. He is mad at the world. He is mad at God. He makes his way down with the Indians into this foreign territory in this place they call Texas. And he comes in, and boy, he just loves Texas. He loves Texans. But they are in bondage to Santa Ana and to Mexico. And so he takes out his uh, warrior mentality, and he, he begins to lead. And he just rises up the ranks. And before you know it, there's the Battle of San Jacinto. And Sam Houston is the conquering general that defeats Santa Ana. And Texas is now liberated, and we have the country of or the Republic of Texas. Don't you love Texas? And there's just nothing like the state of Texas. He is our first president and our third president. He battles hard to get us into the Union, and we do. We make it into the Union, 1845-46. We're in the Union. He becomes our senator and is the senator for about 14 years, he marries this lady, this good Baptist named Margaret. Margaret, I think they had seven or eight children together. He loves this woman, and this woman is a praying woman. I mean, Sam Houston hasn't a chance. The hounds of heaven are nipping at his heels. I'm telling you, she is praying. He is getting under conviction. He will go to Washington, D.C. when Senate is in session. He has these pastors witnessing to him, telling him about Christ. He comes over to, to Independence, Texas, and there is a man. I want to make sure I get his name right. His name is George Washington Baines. And George Washington Baines is a Baptist pastor who helps this... Jesus just appeared on the screen. That's why I lost my thought. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. There he is. There are special cracks right around his that. head, symbolically That's forming... Deciani said his eyes. Look at his eyes. They're riveted toward heaven. Father, I did it. I did your will. And I'm going to tell you something. He comes out of that tomb, and he comes into people's hearts who believe. Sam Houston, George Washington Baines says, Sam, what is your deal? I mean, really, why don't you commit your life to Christ? I'm 61 years of age, and I ain't got saved by now. I'm not going to get saved now. And George Washington Baines says, I mean, really, what, what is your problem? He said, I'll tell you my problem. I had a minister, and I'm not going to tell you what denomination. I had a minister tell me, if I ever partook of the Lord's Supper and I wasn't a Christian, I would be damned in hell forever. And he goes, I just thought, I, I could never take of the Lord's Supper because I am, I am a sinner, and, 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 and if I were to make that mistake and do that, God's going to send me in hell, and I'm going to burn forever because of something. And George Washington Bain says, hold on a second. You got some bad theology. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is rebuking those who are getting drunk at the Eucharist. And he's telling them, y'all stop doing that. Quit getting drunk on the Eucharist wine and gorging yourself and, and observe the Lord's Supper. Isn't it amazing how bad theology sends a lot of people to hell? So George Washington Bain says, 
Sam, Christ died for you. He wants to forgive you of your sins. You can believe on him and go to heaven. So he does. At 61 years of age, he gets baptized on a November day when he's 61 years of age. He still has about nine years of life in him, still at the, really the zenith in popularity. And so the crowd and in independence just shows up in throngs because this is a big day. I mean, the El Presidente is getting dunked by the Baptist minister. Oh, by the way, George Washington Baines, his great-grandson, you may know him as Lyndon Baines Johnson. Go Bears. Go Baylor Bears. Anyhow, he, he was also the president of, of Baylor. Just a little historical tidbit there. Here's my favorite part of the story. A guy comes up to Sam Houston and says, Well, Sam, I understand you got religion. Understand that you got baptized and all your sins are washed away. Sam Houston's smart. He said, yeah, and Lord help the fish at the bottom of the river. Because <laughs> there are a lot of sins down there that God has washed away. Prodigious mind, warrior, statesman. But you know what? He had to humble himself. He had to say, God, you're God, and I receive you. How many of you would like to do that today? I know many of you are here today, and you don't have a relationship with the Lord. And I just want to make this statement. If God can save Sam Houston, you don't have a chance. God can cleanse you, wash you. But what you have to do is you have to come like a child and say, God, you're smarter than I am. Let's just go ahead and settle that. This is your plan. The whole resurrection, crucifixion, the whole deal is your plan. I just believe it. I don't understand it all, but I just believe it, and I receive you, and I commit my life to serve you for the rest of my days. If you will do that, your eyes will be open. It's so amazing. God will not force himself on you. In fact, he'll, he'll walk away. In fact, watch him. Watch him. For many of you right now, he's walking away because you don't believe. Watch him. He's drifting away from you right this moment. He said, hey, I love you, but I can't help you because you won't humble yourself and believe, so Jesus walks away. But some of you are smart enough to go, whoa, don't walk away. Come, come, come here, come back, come back. You have the words of eternal life. On this Easter, March 31st, 2013, I believe on you, and I want to receive you, and Man, I'll get dunked if I have to. If I get baptized like Sam Houston and the guys up there today, I believe, Lord, I believe. How many of you want to do that? Oh, I hope, I pray that a host of you will. Let's bow our heads and close our message with a word of prayer. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, and as the Savior passes us by, let's reach out to him in faith and humble our proud hearts and receive him and receive eternal life. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. We're going to close here with a, with a prayer. And then we're going to have some pastors and some counselors here at the altar. They're just willing and open to pray for you. In our Baptist tradition, what we do before we leave, we give people an opportunity to respond to what they heard. Cleopas and his friends, pretty amazing their response if you think about it. They heard, they believed. They ran back to Jerusalem and they testified. 
Oh, I pray that you will hear today. You will believe. You will run to your families, to your neighbors, and then you will testify that God opened your heart on Easter Sunday and you became one of his followers. And so we open this time up to you on this Easter Sunday. We'll sing just for a couple of moments, give people an opportunity to respond to Christ, and we would be thrilled to pray with you and to assist you in your new relationship with him. Father, we do thank you so much. Thank you for a sweet time of worship. Thank you for the songs of praise. Thank you, God, for your word, that you have preserved it. And even Christ, as you preached the scriptures, you allowed me to preach the scriptures today, to talk about you and how awesome you are. And it is through the preaching of your word, God, that you soften hearts, that you convince people of the truth, and they receive it. And I pray that they would do so even this very moment. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.